Welcome to Policy for the People, a show that explores the public policies that can lift up all Oregonians. This show is a collaboration between KMUZ Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. I am your host, Ken Adams. Tax policy plays a vital role in our lives. Taxes pay for our public schools, our system of transportation, parks, libraries, and many other vital services. Tax policy determines not only whether we have the resources to fund quality service, but who also shoulders the responsibility for these services. Just as racial attitudes have shaped so much of our public policy throughout our nation's history, they also impact the question of who pays taxes. That is the focus of today's show. In this special episode of Policy for the People, We are airing a recording of a talk by the Oregon Center for Public Policy, our partners on this show. Here is OCPP Communications Director Juan Carlos Odones presenting on the racist roots of Oregon's tax system. Enjoy the show. Our story begins in 1862, just a few years after Oregon became a state. That year, the Oregon legislature passed a law dictating that each and every Negro Chinaman, Kanaka, and Mulatto, residing within the limits of this state, shall pay an annual poll tax of $5. And those who couldn't pay the poll tax were required to do forced labor. This poll tax was one of several exclusionary laws that Oregon enacted during this period. It's horrifying, of course, to hear such language today, such racist language. But maybe it shouldn't be surprising. It's not surprising that an openly racist society would have blatantly racist tax laws. But what about today? We don't have explicitly racist tax laws. We don't have tax laws that single out particular racial groups. The tax code doesn't even mention race. Even so, it's clear that the tax system is not race neutral. The tax code reflects the attitudes, beliefs, and the economic interests of those who wrote it. And for much of our history, it has been white, mostly well-off men who've written the tax laws. So today we're going to examine how Oregon's tax system impacts racial equity. And here are the main themes we're going to touch on. The first is that the tax system routinely weighs more heavily on Oregonians of color. You've probably heard the term structural racism, and our tax system is an example of just that. The second is that the tax system isn't generating enough resources to adequately invest in public services, our public schools, public colleges and universities, affordable housing, and so on. And this is no accident. Instead, it partly reflects a retrenchment from the public sector after it became illegal to exclude people of color from public goods. And the third is that this inequitable tax system undermines the well-being of all Oregonians, black, brown, and white. So at the end of this talk, we're going to touch on some of the ways we can make Oregon's tax system more equitable. All right, so let's get started. And we're going to begin by looking at how the tax system entrenches and even deepens racial inequality. The reason for this is that many tax policies fall into one or more of the following categories. Tax policies with origins in a deeply racist past. Tax policies structured to result in racially disparate outcomes. And tax policies applied in a racist way. And we're going to examine each of these categories in turn. So some key structures in our tax system have their origins in this nation's deeply racist past. These structures don't mention race, but it's difficult to disentangle them from a context steeped in racism. Let me give you a couple examples. 
The first example is the supermajority requirement. The supermajority requirement is a provision in Oregon's constitution that provides that if you want to raise tax rates or establish a new tax, you need three-fifths of both the Oregon House and the Oregon Senate to approve it. A simple majority is not enough. In other words, basic democratic principles don't apply when it comes to tax policy here in Oregon. When it comes to deciding whether to raise tax rates or create a new tax, the minority holds power to block change. And this is rare when it comes to passing legislation, where the majority rule is almost always the case. The second example is constitutional property tax limits. In Oregon, measures 5 and 50, enacted in the 1990s, have made it really difficult for local governments to raise the revenue needed to fund local services. And this has shifted the burden onto the state to fill in the funding gaps, particularly when it comes to K-12 education. And that, in turn, limits the ability of the state to invest in childcare, housing, and other essential needs. So where do these policies come from? Where did the idea of putting in supermajority requirements and property tax limits into state constitutions originate? They both originated in the Deep South, at the dawn of the Jim Crow era, at the start of legally enforced segregation. And the short version of the story goes like this. With the end of the Civil War and the defeat of the Confederacy, the period of Reconstruction began. Southern states, led by multiracial legislatures, began, for the first time ever, to provide education and other public services to the recently freed black populations. And they paid for these investments by raising property taxes. But after less than two decades, the era of Reconstruction comes to an end. The multiracial state legislatures are overthrown, often violently overthrown. And it is at this time when Alabama established the first constitutional limitation on property taxes. It was an effort to protect wealthy white property owners. Similarly, in Mississippi, white plantation owners demanded and won a change to the state's constitution to shield themselves from property tax increases. A three-fifths vote requirement for all tax increases, a supermajority requirement, in other words. The same threshold as we have here in Oregon today, three-fifths. A few southern states followed suit in establishing constitutional limitations on property taxes and supermajority requirements in the area of taxation during the Jim Crow era but they were still exceedingly rare. It wasn't until the aftermath of the success of the civil rights movement in the 1960s when these tax policies began to spread more broadly. Let me play you a short clip of an interview with Heather McGee, the author of a recent and wonderful book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And in this clip, Heather McGee gives you a sense of the huge anti-government and anti-tax backlash that followed the civil rights era. I wrote this book because after nearly 20 years of trying to find solutions to economic inequality and our big problems in society, I kept running up against a wall and I kept asking myself, okay, why can't we just seem to have nice things? And by nice things, I don't mean like hovercraft or laundry that does itself. I mean, universal health care, public health system to handle pandemics, reliable modern infrastructure in a country with so much wealth. So I set off on this journey across the country. I immersed myself in the research. And it turns out that racism is at the core of all of our most vexing public problems. I went to Montgomery, Alabama, where 
there's this park in the middle of the town called Oak Park. And it used to have one of the nearly 2,000 grand resort style public swimming pools that were built in the 20s, 30s, and 40s at a time when it was just one little symbol of a big government commitment to everyone having a high quality of life. This was when the sort of American dream really took root. The swimming pool was public, it was funded with tax dollars, and yet it was segregated. During the civil rights movement, Black families said, hey, what about us? And instead of integrating it, the town of Montgomery closed the swimming pool, drained the public pool, backed it, backed a truck full of dirt, filled it in, <laughs> actually closed the entire Parks and Recreation Department. It's wild, but it is the perfect example of the way that racism has a cost for everyone. It feels like in America, ever since the civil rights movement, we've all been sort of dealing with living in the bottom of a drained pool. It feels like since then, and the evidence bears this out, we have seen white people with their votes turn their backs on the formula that created the great middle class that makes would have made all of our lives better because they would have to share it with people they'd been taught, and that's the key, that they'd been taught to disdain and distrust. In the area of tax policy, the backlash that Heather McGee refers to begins to gather steam in the late 1970s, when California adopted constitutional property tax limits with the enactment of Prop 13. In Oregon, these policies arrived a bit later in the 1990s. In 1990 and 1997, Oregon voters put property tax limits into the Constitution with the enactment of Measures 5 and 50. And in 1996, voters approved the constitutional supermajority requirement. To be clear, I am not suggesting that the majority of Oregon voters knowingly approved tax policies rooted in racism. But what I am saying is that back in the 1990s, Oregonians approved tax policies that historically have served to advantage the wealthy white elite. And these policies have put in place a straitjacket on our tax system. These provisions continue to advantage the most well-off while undermining the well-being of everyone else, especially people of color. We're taking this short break to invite you to subscribe to our podcast for free. Find Policy for the People on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Now, back to the show. The second category of inequitable policies that I want to discuss today is tax policies structured to result in inequity. I mentioned earlier, but it bears emphasizing that for most of our history, tax laws have been written by white, mostly well-off men. Those tax laws reflect their biases, attitudes, and economic interests. Right now, many tax policies disadvantage black and brown people, while advantaging white, especially rich white people. Those tax policy choices may be the result of ignorance, indifference, or even design. But regardless of intent, the inequitable outcome of many public policies are not hard to predict, given our underlying economic and social reality. And that reality is a huge economic divide by race. There's probably no better example of this than the racial wealth gap. Now, we don't have a good source of wealth at the state level, so I'm going to be using here national figures. The wealth of the typical white household, the household right in the middle of the wealth distribution, is about $189,000. And that is more than five times the wealth of the typical Latino household, and nearly eight times the wealth of the typical black household. 
It is here where we see one of the clearest manifestations of how centuries of racial oppression and exclusion have added up to present-day racial inequality. Another example is business and stock ownership. About 90% of businesses in our state are owned by white Oregonians, even though they make up about 75% of Oregon's population. And the bigger the business, the more likely that it is owned by a white person. We also see big disparities in terms of who owns stocks, who owns publicly traded corporations. Nationally, corporate shares are disproportionately owned by white wealthy households. We also see big racial disparities when it comes to income, wages, home ownership, poverty rates, and on and on. The tax system operates within this highly inequitable reality. And it is for this reason that tax policies cannot be racially neutral, even if they do not explicitly mention race. A good example of this is the mortgage interest deduction, Oregon's biggest housing subsidy, far and away Oregon's biggest housing subsidy. It is a tax deduction that is available to homeowners who have a mortgage, and they get to deduct from their taxes the interest paid on that mortgage. And the mortgage interest deduction exacerbates racial inequality in two ways. The first is that most of the tax benefits from the mortgage interest deduction flow to the most well-off Oregonians. Black and brown Oregonians are disproportionately lower income. And from this fact alone, we know that they are less likely to benefit from Oregon's biggest housing subsidy. The second reason has to do with the history of home ownership in Oregon and the nation. Black and brown Oregonians are much less likely to own a home than white Oregonians due to government policies and ongoing discrimination. This began before Oregon was a state, when the federal government gave free land to white settlers, land stolen from native peoples. Of course, if you want to build a home, you need some land underneath. Then, from the 1930s through the 1960s, the federal government embarked on a massive program of home ownership. Programs that were by and large targeted to the white population and which largely excluded people of color from the same benefits. There were many different federal policies involved in this. If you read the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, you will know just a vast array of federal, state, and local policies involved. But one example of this was the work of the Federal Housing Administration, which often refused to insure mortgages in communities of color, particularly black neighborhoods. More recently, in the run-up to the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, many banks steered African Americans and Latinos into risky subprime loans, even though they would have qualified for cheaper traditional loans. When the housing bubble burst, triggering an economic meltdown, Black and Latino families were devastated. Of course, people of all races lost their homes during the foreclosure crisis, but the impact was way worse for people of color. This long history of racist policies and discriminatory practices has created huge disparities in homeownership rates. Here in Oregon, 66% of white folks own their residence, compared to only 37% of black Oregonians and 46% of Latino Oregonians. Without a doubt, a tax policy that subsidizes mainly well-off homeowners deepens racial inequality. Let's take a look at another example of, of a policy that worsens racial inequality. And that policy is the kicker. The kicker is an automatic tax cut that kicks in when more tax revenue comes in than what state economists predicted two years earlier. You may have heard that a kicker totaling $1.9 billion is on the way. So who is going to get how much in the upcoming kicker rebate? Well, basically, the richest Oregonians will be getting huge tax rebates. 
the top 1% of Oregonians are going to get a kicker averaging nearly $17,000. Meanwhile, the lowest earning Oregonians, the lowest earning 20% of Oregonians, will get a kicker averaging about $30, so practically nothing. And because of the long history of racial oppression and exclusion, we know that people of color are much more likely to be in the lower earning groups and therefore likely to get smaller kicker payments than white Oregonians. We could go on listing many tax breaks and tax loopholes that worsen racial inequality. But it's also important to note that there are tax policies that cut the other way. Tax policies that advance racial equity. Examples of this include the Earned Income Tax Credit, the Child Tax Credit, and the Estate Tax. But what about the tax system as a whole? Which way does it lean? Unfortunately, Oregon's tax system as a whole entrenches and even deepens racial inequality. When you add up all the taxes that Oregonians pay at the state and local level, in other words, when you add up all income taxes, property taxes, and excise taxes like gasoline and tobacco, it turns out that those who earn the least pay the highest share of their income towards taxes. And those who earn the most, those at the very top, pay the least. We have a overall regressive tax structure here in Oregon. And this fact alone, the fact that we have a regressive tax structure, signals that it is also a racially inequitable tax structure. And indeed, when we layer race data on top of these tax estimates, it turns out that Oregonians of color pay a disproportionate share of the state's taxes relative to their share of the state's income. In other words, Oregon's tax structure weighs more heavily on black and brown Oregonians. But it gets worse than that, because the tax structure that we've been discussing, the combination of state and local taxes, only takes into account the forms of revenue classified as taxes. It doesn't take into account other forms of revenue, such as fees and fines. And since the mid-1970s, the share of all revenue raised by state and local governments in Oregon that comes from fees and fines has nearly doubled. And this shouldn't be that surprising. When you enact policies like constitutional property tax limits and supermajority requirements, they make it hard to raise taxes to fund public services, then state and local governments look elsewhere for revenue. And often, they have turned to fees and fines. Public colleges and universities have high tuition on students, who now leave college loaded up with debt. The criminal justice system, an institution already deeply shaped by racism, has imposed court fees incarceration and supervision fees, and the like. And these weigh heavily on families and individuals. So to sum it up, if you want an example of structural racism, a structure that routinely disadvantages people of color, you need to look no further than our system of revenue. The third category of inequitable tax policies are tax policies applied in a racist way. And let me give you a couple examples of this. The first has to do with the application of property taxes. There's a long history in our nation of tax assessors overvaluing property owned by black and brown people. And the data shows that the problem still exists. A study published earlier this year found that in just about every state, Oregon included, black and Latino residents pay a higher effective property tax rate for the same level of public services as white residents. Another example of the inequitable application of tax laws can be found in terms of who gets audited by the IRS, by the Internal Revenue Service. While we don't have data on the race of folks who get audited, 
we do know that the 10 most audited counties in the nation are predominantly black, and the 10 least audited counties are disproportionately white. So in sum, we have a tax system that entrenches and even deepens racial inequality through a combination of policies rooted in a racist past, policies structured to lead to inequitable outcomes, and tax policies applied in a racist way. But even that is not the end of the story. Because we also need to consider how starving the public sector deepens racial inequality. The tax system we've been discussing is the system by which we generate resources to pay for public services like schools, public transportation, and many other public services. And in an earlier era, we had a tax system that funded fairly robust public services, but public services that worked only for some. This was the New Deal era of the 1930s through the 1960s that Heather McGee described in the clip that I played earlier, when public goods even extended to resort-style pools in many communities. But the caveat was that these public investments were by and large for whites only. With the victories of the civil rights movement, ending legal segregation, and thereby opening the doors to public goods to people of color, a majority of the white population turned against the formula that created a broad middle class. And part of that formula was a strong tax system. In the 1950s, for example, the top federal marginal tax rate, the tax rate that applied to the very richest, went as high as 91%. Today, the top tax rate is below 40%. And today, the tax system often does a poor job at funding public services. Many Oregonians still lack health insurance. And even those who have it often have to pay a lot out of pocket to get the healthcare that they need. There's no universal preschool system. So many children enter school without the benefit of an early education that would help them flourish. Young adults graduating from co public colleges and universities come out loaded up with debt that diminishes their economic prospects. People of color without question suffer more under this system of weakened public services. Historically, communities of color have received fewer resources reflected in shabbier schools and public infrastructure. So when you starve the public sector, that makes it even harder for black and brown communities to catch up. But the majority of white Oregonians also suffer under this system. White Oregonians would also benefit from a top-notch educational system, from affordable quality childcare, and other robust public services. Our inequitable tax system, which starves the public sector, is a system that harms all Oregonians. So let's turn now how we can improve things, how we can advance racial equity through the tax code. And the first strategy that we would recommend is eliminating the structural barriers in our tax system. We saw earlier how certain provisions in Oregon's constitution are policies with roots in the Jim Crow era, in the nation's deeply racist past. Policies like constitutional property tax limits and supermajority requirements have historically been ways to protect the wealthy white elite from taxation. These kinds of constitutional limitations make it hard to raise the revenue that we need to have vibrant public services that improve the lives of all Oregonians, black, brown, and white. So getting rid of the supermajority requirement and eliminating or reforming measures five and 50, the constitutional property tax limits, would be a huge step forward toward a more equitable tax system. So would reforming the kicker, another inequitable tax provision put into the Constitution. Short of eliminating the kicker, we believe that there are ways to make the kicker a much more equitable tax policy. For example, the 
billion dollar kicker that's about to kick could instead go towards addressing our housing affordability crisis here in Oregon, helping house the unhoused. Or instead, we could kick it back equally to every Oregonian rather than giving the rich kickers totaling tens of thousands of dollars. The next strategy that we would recommend is raising taxes at the top. I mentioned earlier that we have an overall regressive tax system that asks proportionally more of those at the bottom than those at the top. We have an upside-down tax system. So turning the tax system right side up, making it progressive, would definitely advance racial equity. And the specific mechanisms for accomplishing this are no great mystery. So we can think about it establishing higher income tax rates for the richest Oregonians, people who make over half a million dollars a year or a million dollars. We can also look to close or reform tax loopholes that mainly benefit the wealthiest, like the mortgage interest deduction. Raising taxes on the profits of large businesses and corporations is also another way to advance racial equity. After all, taxes on business profits largely fall on the owners and shareholders of businesses, and stock and business ownership are concentrated among rich white Americans. Another way to address the regressivity and inequity of our tax system is to reduce taxes for the lowest income Oregonians. Again, we have an upside down tax system that asks proportionally more of those who earn the least. And the most efficient way to cut taxes on the lowest earning Oregonians is to expand tax credits for low income Oregonians, like boosting the state's earned income tax credit. And our final recommendation would be to collect and disclose data on race and ethnicity. Right now, neither the IRS nor the Oregon Department of Revenue ask tax filers their race and ethnicity. And this lack of data makes it easier to ignore the disparate racial impact of the tax system as a whole and particular tax provisions. Collecting such data would give us a better understanding of the inner workings of the tax system and how we can reform it to make the system more equitable. Let me conclude by saying that if we want a truly equitable society, one where all Oregonians, black, brown, and white can flourish, we need to address the inequities in Oregon's tax system. You have been listening to a special episode of Policy for the People, a collaboration between KMUZ Community Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. You just heard OCPP Communications Director Juan Carlos Ordonez speaking on racial inequalities of Oregon's tax system. You can hear it again at ocpp.org. Thank you for listening to Policy for the People. Please remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite app.